We filmed this episode one hour ago, and before we even had a chance to publish it, there was a deadly update. 12 U.S. military service members were killed outside of Kabul airport. I believe it's 11 Marines and one U.S. Navy corpsman. My heart breaks to hear this. As some of you know, my husband um, was military, served in the Navy, and he was in the Medical Corps, so this hits particularly close to home. The episode today, in the, in the episode today, which you'll hear in just a moment, we talked about Joe Biden's deadly policies in Afghanistan, the choices that Biden made specifically leading to the carnage that we're seeing right now in Afghanistan and how Biden's, this is Biden's legacy, right? This is his legacy, it was his legacy in Iraq, it's his legacy in Afghanistan. The loss of these 12 US service members, it's gut-wrenching. There's no other way to describe this. It's, it's gut-wrenching more so since this devastating loss of life is political. And when I say that this loss of life is political, I mean Joe Biden chose to trust the Taliban to prevent suicide bombings. He chose to trust the Taliban. The same Taliban who, I don't care if they have uh, agreements or disagreements with ISIS-K, the Taliban, the same Taliban who wants to kill us, who wants to kill Americans. This loss of life was preventable. It didn't have to happen. Joe Biden is to blame because of the choices he made. And watching this unfold, what comes into my head is I just don't understand. Why didn't we, the United States, destroy the Taliban with overwhelming force when we had the opportunity to do so? Why didn't we bomb the hell out of Al-Qaeda in the 12 provinces where they have strongholds in Afghanistan right now? Why did we allow ISIS-K to grow? Why did we give up Bagram Air Base? Why didn't we, and this is the key question, why didn't we win this war instead of giving up? I cannot imagine hearing that knock on your door that a dozen families in the United States are experiencing today, knowing that you're about to be informed that your son was just killed in Afghanistan. The worst moment a mother or father could ever fathom, all the while knowing Joe Biden could have avoided this. I could cry thinking about it. Yet the military brass, those who are in charge of the safety of your son and daughter in the US military, the military brass have been infiltrated with woke activists who are more interested in so-called white rage, more interested in the anti-racist screeds of Ibram Kendi than they are about winning wars. Imagine if Donald Trump were president right now. Just imagine. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS-K would never get away with killing 12 Americans. I don't know about you, but I'm going to spend the rest of the day praying for the souls of those who have died, praying for the families who are living their worst nightmare. I'm going to honor the fallen by speaking out, and I invite you to join me. Here's the show. President Joe Biden has been in the Oval Office in the White House for, what, six seven months now, eight months, and already his legacy is cemented. His legacy is probably one of the most humiliating legacies in the history of the United States of America when we're talking about presidents of the United States because Joe Biden's legacy is defeat. Not once, but two times now, Joe Biden's actions, his decisions, his influence, things that he has been in control of have allowed ISIS to rise radical Islamist jihadists who want Americans dead, who are willing to detonate themselves as suicide bombers to kill Americans, to get media attention around the world, to hurt American allies. First in Iraq, Joe Biden pulled out against the advice of the commanding generals, including Mattis, and what, it, what happened? 
It led to the rise of ISIS. Now in Afghanistan, Joe Biden is pulling out. Not only is it allowing the Taliban to take over Afghanistan again, not only is it allowing Al-Qaeda, another radical jihadist group who wants Americans dead, not only is it allowing Al-Qaeda to once again have safe haven in Afghanistan, now ISIS-K is also taking hold in Afghanistan. This is Joe Biden's legacy, humiliating, a smelly defeat. I mean, we as American citizens, we should be embarrassed of our president right now. We are America. We are the world's superpower. We are a global force for good. We should not allow our president to give over a country like Afghanistan to radical jihadists, to lose a war intentionally based on his political decisions, to allow US citizens, including military members, to be in harm's way. There are three US Marines who were injured, one of them critically injured in Afghanistan today because of a suicide detonation, a bomber outside of the Kabul airport. Three U.S. Marines are injured because of what Joe Biden did pulling out of Afghanistan in this way. The photos and the videos of the carnage over there, dozens and dozens of bloodied casualties of Afghans who were trying to escape the Taliban, blown up because they dared to help the United States or because they happened to stand in the way of ISIS-K. We don't know who was behind these suicide bombings yet, but in a sense, it doesn't matter whether it was ISIS-K whether it was Al-Qaeda, whether it was the Taliban, these groups want to use Afghanistan as their foothold. And Joe Biden is letting them. When you see these pictures of the women and the children who have been destroyed, killed, brutalized, bombed, burned, know that, of course, the, the people assaulting, the jihadists assaulting, they're responsible, but Joe Biden allowed this. I know it's a very common strain right now. It's a very common um, point of view or policy stance, even on conservative, even in conservative circles, to be very isolationist about Afghanistan, to say, we've been there 20 years, we've spent tr trillions of dollars, let's just get out of there. This is why we stay. This is why it's critical that we stay, because without us, it's a terror hotbed. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But make no mistake, Joe Biden's legacy is defeat. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. It's astonishing that Joe Biden has sent members of his administration to talk directly, I believe it was the CIA director, to talk directly with leaders of the Taliban, completely legitimizing this terror group that has taken over Afghanistan, is now calling Afghanistan the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, what Joe Biden should be doing instead, what he should be saying to the Taliban, we're going to talk about in just a second. But first, I want to talk to you about Truebill. Do you guys know why uh, free trials for subscription services renew on your credit card without your consent? These automatic renewals, it's a business scam that is out to get you. There is a solution to this. The solution is called Truebill. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and then stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, you don't want, or you simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year using Truebill. 
because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in just one tap. That's all you have to do. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so that you don't have to. So download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. They have over 2 million users. They've helped save their users over $100 million. One of their users said in a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my direct TV bill, saved $120 for the year on my Sirius XM bill, saved $840 a year on car insurance. That's pretty incredible. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com slash Liz. Go right now, truebill.com slash Liz. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash Liz. So what is the plan? This is the million dollar question that the American people want to know. And not only do we want to know, we have a right to know it. What is the plan to get American citizens out of Afghanistan? Mr. President, I'm talking to you because right now what we're hearing is we're hearing standards set by the Taliban, not by America. We're hearing the Taliban say August 31st is the hard deadline and afterwards we're not gonna let anybody else pass. Not by the way that they're letting anybody pass now because we see what's happening at the Kabul airport, people beaten with chains, children beaten to make a point, bombs detonated, suicide attacks. The Taliban's not exactly letting people get out right now, but what is the plan to get Americans out of Afghanistan? And let's talk about who, who are these Americans that don't want to get out of Afghanistan? Because that's a very slimy narrative that we hear from Jen Psaki that I don't think that we should let go without a question. Who are these Americans, first of all, who are in Afghanistan? What are they doing there? We've seen reports of a student group, a high school group from El Cajon, California, that's, a, that's reportedly trapped in Afghanistan right now. And yet Jen Psaki claims that there are Americans who want to stay in Afghanistan. She says the Biden administration will help people who want to get out, but there may not. There may be people who don't want to get out. They want to stay. So here's my question. First of all, when we're negotiating with a terror group, and I hate that phrase, is the Taliban in the eyes of the Biden administration the legitimate government of Afghanistan? I would love to hear Jen Psaki answer that question. What happens if the Taliban takes a U.S. citizen hostage? What happens if the Taliban kills a U.S. citizen? These are really important questions. And instead, what we're hearing from the Biden administration is they're kowtowing to this deadline of August 31st, because that's the deadline the Taliban set for getting the U.S. out of Afghanistan. So here's what we have right now. There are thousands of Americans who have been removed from Afghanistan. They've been evacuated from Afghanistan. The Secretary of State Blinken says that there are about 1,500 Americans that are still in Afghanistan. Um, 1,000 of whom perhaps want to stay in Afghanistan. I question this. I question this very strongly. And um, Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio does as well. He sent out a tweet that said, the State Department admits that 4,100 Americans remaining in Kabul alone, but claim that some of them are deciding not to leave. This is a lie, Senator Rubio said. The Taliban is not allowing American women through their checkpoints without a male guardian and are blocking non-citizen family members of US citizens, end quote. It's funny, Jen Psaki didn't mention any of those details. Uh, then we have Josh Rogan, columnist Josh Rogan, who said the Taliban stopped an Afghan United Nations staff member as he tried to reach the Kabul airport on Sunday. They searched his vehicle and found his UN identification. Then they beat him. So we're seeing a very different picture on the ground than what Jen Psaki is saying to us. Again, I go back to my question. What, what is the plan here for getting these people out? For getting Americans and American allies out? What happens if the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS-K takes an American citizen hostage? 
What happens if they murder an American citizen? What happens if a US military member is killed by one of these radical jihadist groups? What is the Biden administration going to do? Are they gonna look for the Taliban to see what the deadline is, what the standards for our behavior is? Because this is the playbook the Biden administration is using. And it's embarrassing. It's going to be deadly. Mark my words, I hate to say that. But what the Biden administration is doing, they are teeing up an unmitigated disaster. It's going to be deadly. People's lives are going to be lost because of what the Biden administration is doing. So former Navy SEAL Jocko Willick, um, he's now a personality. He hosts a podcast. He recorded an absolutely outstanding, outstanding video of what Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, President of the United States Joe Biden should say to the Taliban and the course of action the President of the United States should do in Afghanistan. Take a listen to this. Good evening. I wanted to give you an update on the current situation in Afghanistan. As you know, we were set to leave Afghanistan this month. And as we began the final drawdown, I made some critical errors. Namely, I underestimated the strength of the Taliban and I overestimated the strength and capability of the friendly Afghan forces. This was my fault. And due to my mistake, the Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan. There are reports now that ISIS and Al-Qaeda are working alongside them. Unfortunately, there are tens of thousands of Americans on the ground there as well as friends and allies of America on the ground. And these people, Americans and our allies, are all stranded. And that is my fault. But they will not be stranded for long. In the next 48 hours, America will be in control of most major airports in Afghanistan. Any resistance we meet from the Taliban or otherwise, when we seize these airports, will be destroyed completely and without mercy. From those airports, we will conduct rapid strike rescue missions until we have recovered and evacuated all our citizens, allies, and friends. Any person that interferes with these operations will be killed. We will also recover or destroy all aircraft, vehicles, weapons, and sensitive equipment that we left behind. Any person utilizing, guarding, or located in close proximity to these weapons or equipment will be killed. Once we have evacuated all friendly personnel and recovered or destroyed the weapons and equipment left behind, we will depart Afghanistan. But we will continue to monitor everything that happens in Afghanistan through our ground and airborne surveillance equipment. Terrorist training camps or activity will be targeted and destroyed. Gross violations of human rights will be stopped through overwhelming force. And any group in Afghanistan fighting for freedom, liberty, 
and basic human rights will be supported through special operations forces and ruthless precision air power. We will continue that dedicated support until the enemy is no longer a threat to humanity or to the good people of Afghanistan. May God bless America and may God have mercy on the souls of our enemy because we will not. That is all. And yet, what do we have the Biden administration doing? I'll show you what the Biden administration is doing in just a second because what the White House did yesterday in answer to some of the questions that I'm asking today is shocking. They, the White House is so scared of the American people. They're so scared of the Taliban. Again, it's absolutely embarrassing. Before we get to that, I want to talk for a second about Moink Box. Hear that? If you could see and taste this bacon from moinkbox.com, believe me, you would order it right now. But for now, let me tell you, it's delicious. So I'm vegan, as you know. And I mentioned this last week, but I asked my husband, who's essentially Ron Swanson, um, I asked him for an endorsement. And this is what he said, meat, period. And he said, that's all that's needed. So Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Who doesn't love that? Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find in prepackaged meat in the meat aisle. So sign up at moinkbox.com Liz to get a year of bacon for free, and then pick which meats you want delivered to your first box. This is really, really great stuff. So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash Liz right now. And listeners to this show, if you go to moinkbox.com slash Liz, and the slash Liz is very important, you'll get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. It's spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash Liz. That's moinkbox.com slash Liz. You'll be glad you did. So the Biden administration, the White House, is so worried about what Joe Biden will say in answer to these tough questions about Afghanistan because the White House knows that Joe Biden's legacy is the rise of ISIS and what's happening on the ground right now in Afghanistan, deadly situations at the hands of terror groups. The White House is so fearful of being questioned because they know they're responsible for this that they cut Joe Biden's audio feed after he was asked a hard question on Afghanistan. You have to watch this in order to believe it. Take a look. Thank you all very much, and thank the press for being here. We're going to go private now. Mr. President, if Americans are still in Coincidental timing? Maybe. Who knows? But to laugh at a question like that? To smirk the way Joe Biden did? Not to tell your people, your staff, turn the microphone back on for a second so that I can answer this very important question. It's weakness from Joe Biden. It's incompetence. And it's not a joke anymore. It's deadly. Jen Psaki tries to cover for Joe Biden, but Jen Psaki is, she's always been a liar. That's been obvious easily proven based on what she says and then what she contradicts and the facts she ignores and the science that she tramples. But Jen Psaki's rhetoric on Afghanistan has taken it to a whole new level. She is essentially beginning to engage in victim blaming. She doesn't want Biden to be held accountable for what he's done. 
She doesn't want to take any responsibility as the government of the United States for American citizens abroad. And so she claims American citizens are not stranded. She says that's not the right word, stranded. She says there are Americans who don't want to leave Afghanistan. Take a listen to this if you can stomach it. But does the president have a sense that most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan, it's the way that he has ordered it to happen by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded? Does he have a sense of that? First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home. We are in touch with them via phone, via text, via email, via any way that we can possibly reach Americans to get them home if they want to return home. There are no Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan right I'm now. just calling you out for saying that we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan when I said, when we have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home. We are going to bring them home. And I think that's important for the American public to hear and understand. So essentially what Jen Psaki is doing is she's engaging in victim blaming. She is setting this up to point the finger at the American citizens, at the people that the Biden administration is going to leave behind because this is going to be a catastrophic failure. And she doesn't want to take any of the responsibility for that. So she's trying to turn this around and point the finger at those Americans who are going to be uh, left at the hands of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K. This is how they do it. This is the rhetoric that they use. So I, I wanna talk about a couple of fallacies regarding Afghanistan, because I mentioned at the beginning of the show that there's a very popular narrative, even among conservatives, that we should completely pull out of Afghanistan, right? That this has been a 20-year war, it's cost trillions of dollars, it's time for us to leave. There are some false narratives about what's happening that need to be debunked. They're being peddled by the Biden administration, but in case any conservative buys into them, I wanna get a couple things straight. First fallacy is that this is about the Afghan people, that this is about, that Biden leaving Afghanistan, pulling the US military out, is about the Afghan military and their stomach for fighting against the Taliban. That is false. Actually, this isn't about the Afghan people at all. We didn't go into Afghanistan to save the Afghan people. We went into Afghanistan 20 years ago, yes, because the Taliban harbored Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda waged a terror attack on the United States on September 11th, 2001, that killed 3,000 people. And given the opportunity, Al-Qaeda would do it again. So if the Taliban will again harbor Al-Qaeda, who still wants to kill us, then we should not completely leave Afghanistan. And I know this isn't popular to say, and it can be done in a smart way that doesn't make it an endless war, and it should be done in a smart way that doesn't make it an endless war, that makes it a victory for the United States to keep our homeland safe. Because if we don't do that, if we do what Biden's doing, if we completely withdraw from Afghanistan, if we let the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K take over, we're going to be forced to go back to Afghanistan in two, three, four, five, ten 10 years, and we will suffer much more loss of life, and our country will be vulnerable to another terror attack in the meantime. Like I said, this is about the United States and our safety and security and not about the Afghan people. The Biden administration is lying to you. The, se the second fallacy or false narrative here is that the Biden administration claims that they were surprised about how quickly the Taliban took over the Afghan government. Again, this is false. Biden is directly lying about this. When uh, he admitted, he tried to be humble, and he admitted that they didn't believe that it would happen this quickly. They deliberately ignored the intelligence on the ground, if that's the case. So it's either incompetence or it's lying. Perhaps it's both. It doesn't matter which one it is. They, it shows that Biden is not capable of doing this job of keeping the American people safe. A cable was sent by diplomats in Afghanistan to the State Department in mid-July. 
This is over a month ago. This is six weeks ago. In mid-July, warning the Biden administration that the Taliban would take over just as quickly as the Taliban did take over. What did the Biden administration do in the face of this warning in this cable from people on the ground in Afghanistan? The Biden administration ignored that warning on the ground. Well, it almost reminds you of Benghazi, right? How many cables did Ambassador Chris Stevens send to Hillary Clinton that she ignored before Stevens' warning came true and he was killed by terrorists? It is absolutely inexcusable. We the people should not give Biden any coverage. Whether you're on the left or the right, Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. It's inexcusable that the Biden administration was warned that the Taliban would quickly take over if U.S. troops pulled out, and Biden did it anyway. And now Biden is pretending he was taken by surprise in order to slough off responsibility for what's happening in Afghanistan, the travesty that we're watching unfold, the bloody travesty that's happening before our very eyes. No. There's no excuse for Biden's actions in Afghanistan, and he knows it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be forced to lie about it. In addition, the Secretary of Defense, General Lloyd Austin, he also admitted that the intelligence said that the, Bi the Taliban could take over in months. If Biden didn't know about this intelligence, if only his Secretary of Defense did, then this administration is more dangerous than we even thought. Again, the Biden legacy is humiliating defeat, deadly defeat. Two times, Biden's actions has, have led to the rise of radical jihadist groups. And by the way, one, one more note before, before I wanna talk about something else. One more note here. So Kirby, the spokesman, right? He said what I thought was the most mind-blowing, the most shocking thing. And perhaps this is because my husband's former military and I had just a glimpse inside um, inside what it's like to be part of the military. I didn't serve, so I don't have that full perspective, but my husband did. And when Kirby admitted that the United States, that the Pentagon doesn't know how much US military equipment is missing, he doesn't know exactly who has which piece of equipment, which weapon, et cetera, and he has no expectation of it being returned. This was so mind blowing to me because he said this so casually as if the loss of equipment, uh, this, this lack of accountability was commonplace in the military. And all I could think of when I heard this was what would happen to an enlisted Marine if they lost their equipment, if they lost their rifle, if they lost anything, anything that was issued to them. This is, this is one of the things taught from the very beginning to, to enlisted Marines that your equipment is one of the most important things. Do you know what happens in all reality to an enlisted Marine who loses equipment the way the US government has lost thousands and thousands of, uh, of War fighting, uh, war fighting machines, war fighting equipment, weapons. An enlisted Marine who did the same thing would face a literal court-martial. An actual court-martial. Prison. When the Pentagon loses it, they just shrug it off casually and say, we don't really know how much is missing. We don't know who has it. We don't know where it is. We have no expectation of it being returned. These are the people that are in charge of the lives of our young men and women in military. They operate by different rules. It's shocking, absolutely shocking. So a bit of a change of topic here, but I got into a heated debate recently over vaccine mandates. And um, I wanna share just a little bit of that with you because I think you'll find it interesting. I thought it was loads of fun. 
But first, uh, I want to talk about Young Heretics. If you don't already know, my friend Spencer Clavin, yes, the same Spencer Clavin who I bullied into giving me a workout. By the way, I don't I don't want to lie here. I want to be very honest and very authentic here. I haven't quite done the workout that he gave me as many times as maybe I ought to have. Regardless, he hosts this amazing weekly podcast called Young Heretics. Spencer, like us, is out there fighting the culture wars. He's fighting against cancel culture, and he's fighting against the people that are trying to destroy everything that makes America great. So there you go. That in and of itself is a is a ringing endorsement because we need as many people fighting side by side as possible. So you guys know I love reading too, and that's why Young Heretics is so much fun for me to listen to because every week Spencer walks through a different work of Western literature. Sometimes it's music, sometimes films, and he breaks down why these iconic works are relevant to the crazy world around us today. If you're not already listening to it, you should be. It's produced by Soundfront, the same guys that produce my podcasts. It's entertaining, it's fun, it's great. So go subscribe right now and listen at youngheretics.com. Youngheretics.com. The show is called Young Heretics with Spencer Clavin. It's great. So I was invited by Newsweek recently to participate in a debate on vaccine mandates. Of course, this is a very timely topic. I was honored to be a part of this. Uh, it's a new it's a new podcast actually from Newsweek called The Debate, aptly named here. And my debate partner was Benjamin Wittes. He works, he's a very far leftist. He works for the Brookings Institute. He's the editor-in-chief at the Lawfare blog, for any of those of you who are uh, familiar with uh, leftist publications. And we debated vaccine mandates for an hour, an hour. We talked about private sector mandates. We talked about government uh, government forcing private sector to be the enforcers. We talked about the legal history of it a little bit. We talked about the moral history of it. We talked about everything, everything that we're dealing with right now in our country. It was loads of fun. I'd like to think that I crushed him. I'll leave you to decide that. I'll post the link on my Twitter. My arguments essentially were, if the government is going to force people to do things to their bodies against their will, then what is the limiting principle? And if a government official who is mandating a uh, a vaccine cannot name a limiting principle where that, that line that he or she would say, okay, and this is the point that it becomes inappropriate for government to force you to do something to your own body against your will. If you can't de- define a limiting principle, then you shouldn't be engaging in this behavior at all. Um, my argument also was, we don't trust government. Conservatives don't trust government. Liberals shouldn't either. It shouldn't be a partisan issue uh, because of the history of government corruption. We also know with COVID, there's been so much anti-science masquerading as science. Um, And vaccine mandates in general are a slippery slope, basically to a total lack of medical freedom, a total lack of privacy for individuals in the workplace, in public life, just everywhere. So that was essentially my position, which I think those of you who listen to me on a regular basis are probably pretty familiar with by this time. So instead of responding to my arguments um, on a factual basis or a line-by-line basis, Benjamin Wittes started lying about me. Right, I know. Surprise, surprise. Um, So he pivoted immediately away from the COVID vaccine to the smallpox vaccine. And this is what he tweeted in the wake of our debate. He said, good Newsweek debate on vaccine mandates with Liz Wheeler, who usefully clarified that she would rather tolerate endemic smallpox than let the government force shots on unwilling people. I honor her candor. End quote. I want to address this um, on the podcast because... What he's saying, that tweet, this is false, obviously. I mean, it's it's laughably false. But this is the point. This is what the left does. This is what the left does. They traffic in first hypothetical, the smallpox vaccine, and then hyperbole to cover up their COVID hysteria. And when conservatives like me don't support leftist tyranny, then they're resorting, then they are forced to resort to lying about us, just like Benjamin Wittes lied about me. So here's what I would say. Anybody can listen to the debate and you can hear for yourself that Benjamin Wittes is lying. I really encourage you to listen to it, actually. It's a very good debate, I think. 
Um, that is a little tangential, but here's the most interesting thing. So what Wittes doesn't mention about the smallpox vaccine mandate, and by the way, during this debate, I didn't allow the conversation to be moved from the COVID vaccine mandate to 120 years ago when there was a smallpox vaccine mandate, because that's shifting what the conversation's about. We were talking about the COVID vaccine mandate, not smallpox. And I didn't let the conversation move to that because in a sense, that's irrelevant. However, Wittes is using this smallpox vaccine mandate as essentially justification for his position now. He's in favor of vaccine mandates for the COVID vaccine. But here are some critical facts that he neglected to mention. I don't know whether he's ignorant of them or whether he simply uh, thinks you're stupid and won't research it yourself. But here's what he doesn't mention about the smallpox vaccine mandates. So traveling back 115 years ago, uh, in 1905, there's a Supreme Court ruling on vaccine mandates. The Supreme Court unfortunately ruled that government has a right, I disagree with this, I disagree with this ruling by the way, but the Supreme Court ruled that government does have a right to mandate vaccines if it's in the public good in a public health emergency. Um, and this was this ruling was based on the fact that in 1901, there was a smallpox epidemic, a deadly smallpox epidemic that tore through the Northeast of the United States. And there was a uh, pastor by the name of Henrik, or Henning Jacobson, who, he was born in Sweden, he had the smallpox vaccine as a child and was injured by it, so he declined the smallpox vaccine in the United States for himself and his son during, uh, during this 1901 smallpox epidemic, and he, um, in violation of this mandate by some of these counties and some of these cities. So he took this position all the way to the Supreme Court because he said it was a violation of his fundamental rights. Again, the Supreme Court ruled against him in 1905. They ruled that the government has the authority to, quote, reasonably, hate that word in legalese, reasonably infringe on personal freedoms during a public health crisis. Um, but this is the critical part that Wittes ignores by issuing a fine to those who decline to be vaccinated. This is the basis, by the way, of the reasonableness standard, whether any of your rights as codified and protected in the Constitution can actually be violated. Yes, it's a contradiction. If it's a reasonable violation of your right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The vaccine order at the time, in 1901, was a mandate. But what it wasn't is it wasn't forced vaccination. So what that meant is Jacobson, when he declined to get vaccinated, he was fined five bucks. So five bucks then is about $150 now. He was fined. He wasn't forced, forcibly vaccinated. He was fined. And what Jacobson was fighting in his lawsuit, it wasn't the fact that he wasn't going to be allowed to participate in society. He was fighting against the $5 fine. So what the Supreme Court ruled on was whether he could be fined. So that's that's thing number one. That's very different than a vaccine mandate that forcibly vaccinates people. The second thing is this Supreme Court ruling in the Jacobson case had very, very, I don't even know the right word here, disgusting repercussions. The precedent of this case, which I believe was wrongly decided, the precedent of this case provided the basis for a law in the state of Virginia that allowed the government to sterilize women against their will. That's right. So there was a case in 1927, 15 years after, after the Jacobson case, it was called Buck versus Bell. 
and the Supreme Court allowed the government to neuter a young woman whose name was Carrie Bell because of what the government accepted as being mental defectiveness, a mental defect. They said it was a burden, her, her offspring would have been a burden on public welfare. This is what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said in this ruling, quote, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. And he cited Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Then he said, three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. So what does this mean? It means the Supreme Court ruling in 1905, the Jacobson case, that said that the government is allowed to mandate vaccines, that it's a reasonable violation of your freedom. The same ruling justified eugenics in our country. Think about that for a second. The same ruling set a precedent that justified eugenics. This is not hypothetical. 60,000 women in our country ended up being sterilized in the wake of that decision. 60,000 women. This was reasonable, we were told. How can you possibly justify this? I mean, it, it's shocking when you hear this. And in this reasonableness standard, by the way, I reject to a certain extent because that's not, that's not um, objective. It's subjective based on someone's opinion of what's reasonable. So here's what, here's what I would say in regards to the reasonableness standard. In, this is specifically for the COVID-19 vaccine. How could any government official justify a COVID-19 vaccine under the reasonableness standard, which is what, the, what they're using to justify it, when this mandate is applied unequally to people who have natural immunity? Or when it's applied on when other NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, are applied on a partisan basis, meaning Republicans aren't allowed to gather in large groups, their churches are shut down, but Black Lives Matter and Antifa are allowed to riot in large groups in the city in cities that they're destroying. What part of that is reasonable, even under a legal standard, not just a political standard? Essentially, going through the details of this precedent. And I, like I said, this, this is mostly for your edification. Um, like I said, I hope you listen to my debate with Benjamin Wittes, but this proves my point about the government's power to abuse. If they're given the power, they will abuse it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So like I said, I, I encourage you to go listen to my whole argument uh, for what I actually said, and don't believe a word that Ben Wittes says about me on uh, Twitter, which given, given how many people responded to that tweet, I don't think very many people did believe him. Um, speaking of the COVID vaccine, the FDA has granted full approval of the COVID-19 vaccine. And I don't know, my response to this is, so what? So what? This, this, this means nothing to me because, first of all, the FDA is not a fully independent regulatory agency. The FDA is a sub-agency of the Department of Health and Human Services, which is run by Javier Becerra, the abortion king, and Rachel Levine, the man who masquerades as a woman who thinks it's totally fine for children to be given um, pharmaceutical interventions that chemically castrate them, perhaps even without the permission of their parents. So does what the FDA says mean much to me? Not at this point, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. And it's not based, this FDA approval is not based on any new information that says that this vaccine is safe. It was obviously under pressure from the White House. The government, uh, this is state governments, local governments, and the federal government are using the idea of FDA approval as justification for their vaccine mandates. They're saying, well, it's no longer emergency youth author authorization. Now you have no reason to decline the vaccine. False. 
It means it means absolutely nothing. The facts of the, the facts on the ground about this vaccine haven't actually changed. They're just using this um, this FDA approval, which was obviously politically motivated. It's obviously under the Biden administration to begin with. It wasn't ever independent of politics. They're using it to try to force you to be vaccinated. So my response to that is, I, unfortunately, the Biden administration has polluted any independent mindedness. And this is even laughable that the FDA ever had, which they didn't. And so it means nothing. Nancy Pelosi, uh, likewise, is a hypocrite once again. This stuff just makes me laugh in a sense because I I actually appreciate when Nancy Pelosi does this, um, when she violates everything her party stands for, because it shows you that even someone who's, what, is she in her 80s now, maybe even in a high-risk category for COVID, she doesn't believe the fear-mongering. If she doesn't believe the fear-mongering, then there's no justification for the lockdowns coming from her party. But Nancy Pelosi attended a large fundraiser in Napa Valley, California, which I guess is a hotspot outbreak for COVID right now. Um, Nobody was wearing masks. Everybody was packed together. She wasn't wearing a mask. Nobody at any of the tables were um, wearing masks. You can see photos and videos, videos of this online. Meanwhile, you are forced to wear a mask while Nancy Pelosi isn't. Again, hypocrite's gonna hypocrite. Uh, The governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, has issued uh, a mask mandate, an outdoor mask mandate, even for vaccinated people. Just when you think these leftists couldn't get nuttier. Um, Here's the thing, I actually expect this from Democrat politicians. I expect politicians on both sides of the aisle, to be honest, to be tyrants to use anti-science rhetoric to justify their tyranny. So do I blame Oregon Governor Kate Brown? Sure, she's an idiot. This is obviously completely idiotic, it's ridiculous. But here's who I blame even more. I blame the people of Oregon because a governor wouldn't have the power, and I'm not, there's a difference between power and authority. Authority is is legitimate power. Power is just essentially her choosing to boss people around. She wouldn't have the power to do this if the people of Oregon weren't complying, right? Because if there's a mandate that's so unreasonable that people say, I'm not following this, if a large enough number of people refuse to follow it, then the order has no teeth. They're not gonna throw 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people in prison. They're not gonna issue fines that widely. She would lose all political capital. And these politicians, what they care about the most is maintaining their seat of power, maintaining their seat in government. So if the people of Oregon simply threw this this mandate on the curb and said, we're not following this, this is stupid, then she wouldn't have the power to do this. And yet the people of Oregon are complying. They're doing this. They're obeying. They're being docile. Guys, come on. Stand up for science. Stand up for individual liberties. Don't let your governor do this. Stop obeying. It's the only way to stop these politicians from their overreach. So a five-year-old named Harvey Sutton completed um, the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail, by the way, is 2,100 miles, uh, this really long hike all across the country. A five-year-old completed it. There were headlines everywhere, and usually headlines like this don't interest me at all. I don't care about this kind of thing. This one struck me because this child, um, this five-year-old child hiked 2,100 miles, and all these headlines were lauding this as if this was an incredible thing, this was so cool, This what an accomplishment for a child. And I had a completely different reaction to this. My reaction to this was, let's look at the facts of what actually happened. 2,100 miles of hiking done in the course. They completed this in 209 days. So if you divide 2,100 miles by 209 days, that's 10 miles of hiking per day every single day for almost a year. 
this five-year-old child was forced to do this because a five-year-old child doesn't know what's good for him or what's bad for him. And so if even if this was his idea, which I doubt, I'm sure this idea was planted by his parents, his parents allowed this, his parents enabled this. And I mean, I don't want to go quite as far as to say this is child abuse, but this is completely unhealthy for a child. I mean, you want to talk about open growth plates and bone structures? 10 miles a day, every day for 209 days for a total of 2,100 miles just to get a couple of headlines? Josh and Cassie Sutton are the name of his parents, and I think they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They started training this kid when he was two years old. Two years old. I think this is absolutely horrendous, and I don't know why we celebrate this kind of, uh, this kind of exploitation of a child just so that the parents can get a pat on the back from the media. Oh, this is so cool what you did for your kid. No, it's not. It probably hurt your kid and it's not something you should be doing. Why don't you teach him? Why don't you treat him like a child? Teach him what children are supposed to learn and stop using him to gain headlines about yourself. How about that? All right. On that note, oh, actually before we go, I had a great conversation this week with Ali Stuckey, host of the Relatable podcast. We talked about her suspension from Twitter. She was banned from Twitter, at least temporarily, for speaking the truth about transgender athlete Laurel Hubbard. It's a very interesting conversation. And I asked her in this conversation why she chose this hill to die on, because we know what Twitter's rules are. She, Ali Stuckey knew by sending this tweet that Twitter would likely ban her. And so I asked her why she was willing to die on this hill. And her answer is completely fascinating. Um, locals VIPs, you have access to this interview early. Head on over to lizwheelershow.com slash locals and uh, take a look at that. All right, the great and powerful Jay Hay says that we are out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, think for yourself. Use critical thought. Reject critical theory. Question authority. Follow the facts. And don't let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Download each and every episode. Leave us a five-star rating. Write us a glowing review. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.